Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. We were so happy to present this beautiful, multifaceted, extremely diverse program for the holiday season. Uh, I love to program concerts that have a little nod to the season and a sort of festive nature, but are made up of great music, new and old. So in a, a nod to the holiday season, we started with that ubiquitous holiday favorite, I should also say wedding favorite, Johann Pachelbel's Canon, from sometime between 1680 and 1720. The funny thing about this piece, Pachelbel's Canon, is that until it was exhumed in the 1970s by the Payard Chamber Orchestra, uh, it had sort of been lost in the midst of Baroque history. It is a, a perfect piece of music. You know, it's uh, written originally for continuo, harpsichord, and cello, or some version of a bass line, uh, with three solo violin parts. And uh, in its original form, that's probably how it was played, three solo violins and probably a cello and a, and a harpsichord. And uh, what's incredible about the piece is that it is exactly as it's stated. It's a canon. A canon, of course, is just a fancy word for a round. So the first violin starts with uh, essentially two bars of of music that's echoed by the same two bars in the second violin and then in the third violin. And what's remarkable about the piece is that every two bars, the second and then the third uh, violin, echoes exactly the material of the first violin. So it is an absolute, precise, exact canon. And yet, as you hear, anytime you hear this piece, it's such a gorgeous combination of, of tones and what we now call harmonies. And um, it's such a rich and beautiful piece. Again, uh, written by Johannes Pachelbel, very very little is known about him. Very little is known about when the piece was written or what it was written for. But it is uh, deservedly a gorgeous perennial favorite, not only at weddings and uh, the holidays, but year-round. So here now to begin our program, a little sort of Baroque overture, if you will, Pachelbel's Canon, performed by members of the Albany Symphony, connected by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion and WMHT.org. That was the ubiquitous Pachelbel Canon played by members of the Albany Symphony, connected by me, David Allen Miller. After that beautiful little introduction, just to warm up the room, uh, we turn to one of my very favorite American works. This is a great, great work by the mid-20th century American composer Samuel Barber. Uh, it, is, it is his work, Knoxville, summer of 1915, Barbara, as you'll remember, was, I think, the most unabashedly romantic of all 20th century American composers. He sort of came to a great public notice in the 1930s. Arturo Toscanini heard a couple of his early works, including that famous Adagio for Strings, his first essay, uh, and began playing and championing his music. And it was always a huge success with audiences, uh, somewhat more frowned upon by certain of the more uptight members of the music community, because at that time, particularly not the 1930s, but particularly the 1940s and 50s, 
you know, the whole move in concert music was really toward a much harder kind of dissonant, atonal or post-tonal kind of music. And here was Barbara writing this gorgeous, voluptuous music that harkened back in many ways to the romanticism of the 19th century. This is a work that Barbara wrote in 1948, a very singular kind of work. It's based. It's basically a, a soprano, an extended soprano aria for soprano and orchestra, and based on a, a beautiful prose poem from 1937 by the great American writer, journalist, and poet James Agee. In the 30s, Agee had this idea of trying to write what he described as kind of improvisatory jazz-inspired poems. So he would sit down and just write a kind of prose poem uh, without doing a lot of editing or refining uh, and just let let the the ideas flow. And this is probably his most successful one. It's, it's a, a piece that he claims to have written in about 90 minutes. And Barbara was very much captivated by it. It's this very simple and beautiful and very direct depiction of Agee's life in 1915 when he was a five-year-old boy. It happened. There's great sort of implied sadness in it because a year later, A.G.'s father was killed tragically in a, a car accident uh, when A.G. was six years old. But uh, in 1915, he didn't know this yet. So A.G. writes this poem and Barbara sets it. And what's so, um, t- about 10 years later, what's so striking about the, the prose poem, and it's not really a poem as much as a kind of meditation or a, almost like a little, a little fragment of memoir, well, there are two things that I think are quite striking about it. One is uh, the way that A.G. sort of depicts the, the pre-1915 world of this wonderfully pastoral, bucolic um, America in Knoxville, his hometown, in 1915 and pre, you know, of the family sitting on the porch, of his parents and aunts and uncles, and of picnics and lying on blankets in the sunlight, and, uh, and just this wonderful, idealized sense of, of this beautiful pre-industrial world. And then there's also this incredible juxtaposition. The second section of the piece and uh, is uh, this kind of meditation on the sound of the streetcar's iron clang uh, as it kind of interrupts this beautiful world. So it's this kind kind of stark uh, dichotomy between pastoral beauty and modernity sort of invading this beautiful ideal world. Uh, and that's something that, that A.G. plays with through through the poem. The other even more striking aspect, I think, of the poem and of Barber's setting of it is the way that A.G. and Barber sort of go seamlessly between the poet observing or remembering his idealized childhood in 1915 as an adult and actually speaking in the voice of the child. So it begins sort of, you almost feel like you're in this childlike world, and, and the music reflects that. Then there's that scene with the iron clanging of the streetcar, and then this uh, sort of, A.G. steps back, and, and as does Barber, and kind of looks at his childhood from an adult perspective, and there's a lot of wistfulness at the loss of his parents and his aunts and uncles and of his innocence, and it becomes very poignant and and very sad and very emotional as he sort of prays for the souls of his lost relatives who, who miraculously in this memory are still very much with him and alive. And then at the end, it sort of returns to his, uh, you know, being carried up to bed and put to sleep and remembering the beauty of, of childhood. So, and again, the music does the moving from adult present to childlike past back and forth as beautifully as does the the text. It's an amazing piece, about a 15-minute long piece, but he packs so much, both both composer and poet packs so much emotional richness into this gorgeous piece. And it's really become a 
a favorite of sopranos and, and of orchestras and of audiences as well over the past 50, 60 plus years that the work has existed. Uh, we're delighted to be joined in, in this performance by one of our very favorite collaborators. It's the soprano Talise Trevine, um, a major uh, vocal artist in the world today. She sang uh, Bess in the production of Porgy and Bess at Glimmerglass Opera a couple of summers ago. She sung at Bard College as a, a central character in some of their operatic productions. She she actually made one of our Grammy-nominated recordings with us of Chris Rouse's Kabir Padavali, and she has toured the world and continues to turn the world, performing Madame Butterfly and other major roles in the repertoire. She's, I think, currently understudying Bess at, at the Metropolitan right now for, for their production. Uh, she's a radiant, glorious artist. We're delighted to be joined by her. So here now, Talise Trevine and the Albany Symphony performing Samuel Barber's Knoxville, Summer of 1915, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Samuel Barber's Knoxville, summer of 1915, performed by the great soprano Talise Trevine with the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The final work on the first half of our program is a work that's very close to my heart. It's a work, actually, that we commissioned and premiered last spring as part of our American Music Festival. And you may remember that last spring we did a very wonderful American Music Festival around the idea of social justice movements in New York State and what an incredibly important central figure New York has been in leading uh, social justice movements, most specifically for the festival, the women's suffrage movement in the 19th and early 20th century and the gay rights movement uh, in the 1960s and beyond, two very important anniversaries that we were celebrating. And as part of those celebrations, I asked a a brilliant composer, Andre Myers, who lives and works in the Los Angeles area in the San Bernardino Valley of California, if he would be willing to write a piece perhaps about the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass, because not only was Frederick Douglass central to a lot of important uh, social justice movements, particularly abolitionism in, in New York State, in Rochester, where he spent much of his adult life and where he's, he's buried, actually, but because Frederick Douglass also played a very important role in the women's suffrage movement, which not everybody knows. In fact, he was one of the few men who was at that very, that, that legendary uh, meeting, the first uh, conference on women's rights in 1848 in Seneca Falls that Elizabeth Cady Stanton put together. And it was he, Frederick Douglass, African-American, former freed enslaved person, who when Miss Stanton's husband stood up and said, look, these different ideas we have are all fine, but item number nine, giving women the vote, that's just going too far. And it was Frederick Douglass who stood up, who stood up and said, no, we must fight until women have the right to vote. And he became a steadfast uh, champion of of the suffrage movement, even through difficult years when the movement was not uh, particularly kind to the abolitionist cause and a lot of, frankly, racist racist rhetoric arose from the women's suffrage movement. Um, Douglas remained a staunch uh, supporter, champion, outspoken speaker on behalf of women's suffrage. So I thought it would be great to have a Frederick Douglass piece. And when I asked Andre if he would be willing to write one, he was delighted to. He's, like me, a huge fan of Frederick Douglass. I happen to share a a birthday with Frederick Douglass, so I remember as a kid, I read every autobiography I could, his autobiographies plus other biographies, uh, and I'm a a big fan of his. And uh, he was, as you know, one of the great public intellectuals of the 19th century, an extremely erudite, educated, self-educated man uh, who, who really became one of the leading figures in in articulating why enslaved people in America 
should not be enslaved, and, and was really a, a critical figure in convincing Lincoln and, and everybody that, that slavery was, was certainly not acceptable in, in our country. So Andre went about creating this piece, and I, I must say that he did an, an incredible job because we gave him a lot of, a lot of constraints. I don't, they, he, did, he turned them not into constraints. He turned them into, into assets, but we knew we wanted him to collaborate with our dear friends at Albany High School, uh, the Albany High School Choir, as well as as many ways as possible with students at Albany High School. Uh, because the piece was originally for our new music ensemble, Dogs of Desire, there are two female vocalists in that ensemble, so it had to have a vocal element as well. Uh, and Andre immediately sort of embraced the idea and fashioned this fantastic four-movement work, a very powerful work for choir, orchestra, vocal soloists, and he really wanted to bring rap into it and have high schoolers rap essentially the story of Frederick Douglass's life, and also to actually rap sections of his speeches. And so we identified these two fabulous young rappers at Albany High, and we did the piece last spring, and it was such a, a powerful, beautiful piece that I thought it would be wonderful now at the holidays to repeat it for our Albany, our Albany Symphony subscription audience in Troy. These were two performances in Troy on the weekend. And so that is, in fact, what we did. And we were delighted that Albany High School and their their wonderful choir, their chamber choir, and their brilliant director, Brendan Hoffman, were willing to bring the piece back. And they brought it back, you know, even better than before. We had 30 or so brilliant young vocal artists from Albany High School on stage with us and these two miraculous rappers, Esmeralda and Mohammed. And uh, the work is in four movements. The first movement is, uh, as Andre describes it, basically a kind of um, translating Douglas into sort of modern vernacular in a certain way. Uh, Andre's contention is that Frederick Douglass was one of the great social media influencers of the 19th century. And if he lived today, he would know how to use Twitter and and Instagram and all those things. He was very careful and very astute at, at curating his own image. Uh, he was one of the most photographed people of the 19th century. He was always photographed extremely well-dressed with a very serious expression. He didn't want to look, you know, playful or funny. He really wanted to convey this image of himself as an African-American man who was incredibly, who had great gravitas and, and pride and, and seriousness of purpose. So he was a great influencer. So it's this idea of of his being a a social media star. The second movement really sort of outlines, uh, in Andre's words and with his text, the the sort of highlights of of Frederick Douglass's life, of his achievements, of which there were countless, countless achievements, and kind of goes through his chronology. Uh, And at one point even says, and I think we all feel this, how could one man have done so much in one life? The third movement is a real departure. It features just the two female vocalists with the orchestra, and it's called Permission to Rise. The text is, I don't need your permission to rise. And it's really, I think, about the women's suffrage movement, but also about abolitionism and about oppressed peoples generally and how they do not need the man's or anyone's permission to take their own lives in their own hands. Uh, And the last movement is a kind of beautiful final hymn, essentially, to just um, freedom and hope and the message of Frederick Douglass. And uh, Andre said something wonderful in the pre-concert talks that he he really uh, looked to Bach cantatas and that it's set up kind of like a Bach cantata with these choral outer movements and with this idea of going into other places related to the text in the middle, but uh, sort of putting it together and, and, and connecting the materials through the beginning and the end. And I should say also that the rappers don't only rap about Frederick Douglass's life, but quite remarkably or miraculously, they actually at the beginning and the end of the piece rap 
uh, Frederick Douglass's speeches, uh, little fragments of his speeches, and it's just fantastic to hear those those speeches wrapped. They're very, uh, they're again they're very erudite and and very deep, and they work wonderfully as as wrapped material. Andre also uh, confessed that 20 years ago when he was a, an undergraduate at the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York, and also when he was at the University of Michigan, his dream was to be a famous rapper. And he did a lot of rapping, and he actually went down to Warner Brothers and tried to sell one of his rap discs unsuccessfully. Uh, so we're happy that—we're uh, not happy, we're unhappy for him, but we're happy that he has found his voice as a great concert music composer. So here now, the only the third performances ever of Andre Meyer's Studies in Hope, Frederick Douglass. It features vocal soloists Chelsea Fingal and Paul Aboat, uh, rappers Esmeralda and Mohammed from Albany High School, and the beautiful Albany High School Chamber Choir led by Brendan Hoffman. It's Andre Meyer's Studies in Hope, Frederick Douglass, performed by the Albany Symphony and me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. That was composer Andre Meyer's Studies in Hope, Frederick Douglass, performed by sopranos Chelsea Fingal and Paul Aboat, rappers Esmeralda and Mohammed, and the Albany High School Chamber Choir, led by Brendan Hoffman, all performing with the Albany Symphony and me, David Allen Miller. One great work of the classical repertoire occupied the second half of our program. It was Mozart's Linz Symphony, Symphony Number no. 36. The symphony is called the Linz Symphony because Mozart wrote it in Linz. He was on his way back from a rather tense family trip uh, back to his hometown of Salzburg. As you may remember, uh, Mozart had moved to Vienna from Salzburg in 1781 and had moved in with a family of the widow Weber, who had uh, four charming daughters. Not that long after, Mozart uh, began to, I guess we'd say, court uh, one of the daughters, Constanza. He had previously been in love with the oldest daughter, Aloysia, who became a very famous soprano, but uh, that ended up, she spurned his advances, his interest. Uh, He turned to Constanza and ended up having a very wonderful courtship with her and decided to marry her. Uh, Unfortunately, his father, who was a rather overprotective parent and really, I think, felt no young woman could possibly be good enough for his son, was very resistant to the marriage. Mozart eventually, after lots of back and forth, decided to to take things into his own hand and go ahead and marry Costanza. His uh, father's approval, grudging approval, was received a day after their their wedding. But then, not that long thereafter, well, I should say a little while thereafter, about a year later, uh, Mozart and Costanza made the obligatory trip back to Salzburg to, quote, meet the relatives. Uh, They were there, as happened often in the 18th century. It wasn't a a three-day trip on the airplane. It was a three-month trip by carriage. And so they they stayed in Salzburg for three months, which sounded rather tense from the letters, etc. But at least Leopold met Constanza and Nonaril, Mozart's sister, met her, and they discovered she wasn't a bad person. In fact, she seems to have been a wonderful spouse and partner in Mozart's life and ultimately a very astute and quite brilliant business person after his death. But they they all met, and then after this three-month visit, uh, Mozart and Constanza headed back to Vienna, stopping in the town of Linz, where there was a, a wonderful courtly family, the, the Thun family. And Count Thun was a very big fan of Mozart's music and insisted that he stay at his castle and that they also give a special performance of Mozart's 
works during his four or five day stay there. There's a wonderful letter from Mozart to his father in which he says, I, I got to Linz and Count Thun was so gracious. I'm going to put on a concert at his request. I have some piano concertos with me, but sadly I don't have a symphony along, so I think I'm just going to have to write one, uh, even though I've only got three or four days to do it. So got to go, got to go write my symphony now. It's kind of funny. He kind of signs out. It's like, I got to go write a symphony. So he did, in fact, write this amazing symphony uh, in a span of just a few days. And it is one of the first truly mature symphonies in Mozart's oeuvre. Haydn had been pretty much been pioneering this new art form, the symphony, over some 50 or 60 or 70 works by this time. And Mozart had certainly written a good share of them, you know, 30-some. But they were really, at least Mozart's early symphonies, are really very light entertainment pieces. Often they last not more than 12 or 15 minutes. Some of them are in four movements, some are in three movements. Uh, they really grow out of this Baroque idea of what's called the Sinfonia, which was a one-movement work in three parts. Uh, now they've separated the parts all the way Haydn did. But he hasn't really evolved the, the big declamatory, you know, the stop and listen kind of symphony. And this is one of the first ones in which he really successfully does that. It's in four separate movements. It's in this grand C major, so one of Mozart's most triumphant keys. And it's, uh, it includes trumpets and drums, which makes it a very regal kind of almost military sort of piece at various points. Uh, it also has two horns, two oboes, two bassoons. Interestingly, no flute and not yet any clarinets. So it's still kind of in a Baroque, for a Baroqueish style orchestra with the addition of, of brass and, and percussion and, and, and timpani. So four big, gorgeous movements. And I must say, one of the things that strikes me greatly is, is that for the, not for the first time, but for almost the first time in Mozart's symphonic works, we really begin to hear, as we do in the piano concerti of this period, Mozart reintroducing counterpoint, this idea of a lot of um, Baroque techniques that were brought to their full fruition by, by Bach and Handel, who had died in, in 1750, so had been gone for 30-some years. And as you probably remember, after Bach and Handel's death, there was kind of a repudiation, a turning away from this very ornate, very contrapuntal kind of music with lots of lines running against each other, and, and a, 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 the adoption of a much more simple kind of public music, melody plus chords plus harmony. And uh, it's now that Mozart, Haydn also, but Mozart more than anybody else, through his study of Bach and Handel's manuscripts, he had a great friend in Vienna, Baron von Swieten, who had the greatest library of Baroque masterworks and had like the complete works of Bach. And so Mozart was able to study these works, which at the time, strangely, were very much unknown. And it began to really inform Mozart's writing. So uh, there's a lot of counterpoint, point to a lot of different lines running against each other, a lot of fugue uh, in the last movement in particular of the symphony. And that gives it a kind of mature weight and grandeur that comes to its full fruition, really only with the Jupiter Symphony, with Mozart's last symphony, and certainly with his late piano concertos. So uh, four movements. First movement, interestingly, a, a bold, dramatic introduction a la Haydn, something that Mozart didn't usually use in his symphonies. He usually just launched into the opening allegro. So a, a brief but very powerful and dramatic introduction, slow introduction, then a beautiful, fast, very kind of um, regal first movement, lots of trumpet and drums and lots of uh, very proud C majory kinds of gestures. The second movement, a beautiful Sicilienne in 6-8, so a lilting kind of two feel, and I try to take it rather liltingly. Some other conductors take it rather slowly, lugubriously, in my estimation, but a beautiful, fresh uh, second movement. There's been much comment on the second movement that Mozart, 
uses the trumpet and drums in this movement, usually in second movements of this period. Even if there were trumpet and drums in a symphony, the composer Haydn and others would eschew the trumpet and drums in the slow movement to give it a sort of more intimate chamber music you feel. But Mozart sort of brightens it up with the use of, of the trumpet and drums. Beautiful lilting movement. Third movement, a rather traditional traditional set of two minuets, minuet and trio. One of the interesting aspects of this of this trio in particular is that because there aren't flutes in the symphony, they're just the oboes and the bassoons, and Mozart does this wonderful, very delicate playing back and forth in the trio where the oboe joins the violins for the melody and then the bassoon responds with the violins. And So it's always the violins playing, but you hear the, the tone color change in the trio between the oboe and the, and the bassoon having this wonderful dialogue with the material. And then finally, this great, great contrapuntal finale, very fast and exciting and dramatic, again in a very kind of Baroque way because there's a, a gorgeous uh, extensive kind of fugal passage in it that harkens back, I think, to Bach in a very powerful way. Here it is now, Mozart's Linz Symphony from 1783, from his trip back from Salzburg to Vienna. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. That was Mozart's Symphony Number no. 36, the Linz Symphony in C major. The Albany Symphony was conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.